On today's episode, I have an interview with Rebecca Stavish, the managing attorney for the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic with MidPen Legal Services in Pennsylvania. So let's get to the interview. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, the podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics, focuses on tax controversy work, and looks at related issues in tax news. I am your host, William Schmidt, the director of the Low-Income Taxpayer Clinic at Kansas Legal Services. I don't know that I've met you at any of the, the conferences or, or any... Possibly not. I'm still pretty new. Oh, um, okay. This summer will be my third year with... Pen. We're located in central Pennsylvania, so it's mostly rural counties, but we're close to Harrisburg. That's one of the big cities. Okay. I guess we'd actually be closer to Philadelphia, too. Okay. I've, a lot of counties. I've been to Villanova and Philadelphia, but, you know, I ha- haven't we're traveled. West. Okay. <laughs> okay. I haven't traveled much else in Pennsylvania, so it was, it was just directly to to Villanova for some training, and, and that's it. Yeah, and I heard Christine um, does a really great presentation for tax court training, so I was hoping she would do it again this year, but I don't think it's going to happen, obviously, with all the shutdown. Yeah. But maybe, you know, next year. Well, they've, they've done tax litigation training. I don't know if if it's been every summer or, or how frequently they've done it, but um, this was June 2016. So I, I had just started in March 2016. And so it's remote learning for, I believe, three weeks. And then, then they want you to come in on a Friday. And then Saturday morning is mock trials. And um, Judge Carluso uh, was one of the two judges for for the mock trials. So I I recommend it, and it's I think it's fifty dollars for um, LITC, and it's more if you are not an LITC attorney, but they give a discount if those people are willing to do volunteer work for like an well, LITC organization. That's great. Just yeah, that's awesome. Because we, even though we're in Pennsylvania, um, we don't really get a lot of volunteers. We struggle with that to get any assistance. So if there's a way that you know we can get people to do a case pro bono, that'd be great. Truly great. Yeah, and I I had taken trial advocacy class in law school. So to some degree, that had overlapped, and it wasn't quite new to me in that way, but all of it was about tax litigation and tax court specifically, so it was it was certainly worth it that even though some things were a refresher to me, other pieces were new because they were specifically about tax. So, I mean, I, I don't know that I, I mean, I haven't gone back, but I would certainly repeat it if, if it works out. And I mean, but it was, it was a great course and I met several people in the LITC organization that I've been able to, to stay in contact with. So it's, it's definitely worth it for that. But if, you know, you being in Pennsylvania, 
then it's it's even a, a better opportunity. But like for everyone else in the country, you have to be able to get you know travel there and you know find find a place to stay overnight and, and things like that. So it's you know it's it's some extra work, but but I do recommend it. You've been three years with your organization. Have you been with the LITC the entire time or? Yes. Um, so I started at the very end of July 2017 with Midpens LITC. And I've been with them since. Um, it looks like we'll be bringing on another staff member soon who will be my supervisor for LITC purposes. But we will be uh, primarily working different types of cases out of our York PA office. He's been a huge help when it comes time to grant reporting and sending off ideas about how to work cases, which I could definitely use and help because even though I've been here three years, I'm still learning things and I still feel really helping out to have someone who's done a little bit more than me when I get stuck on things. Like, for example, how do you value a, a, a legal vote for a client who might be a good offer compromise candidate. I'm not really sure how that works. I didn't know if the IRS would exclude that from property or include it, and it actually really helps to have someone to read that too about those types of things. Okay, yeah, I've, I've never, you, you said they had a boat, so I, yeah, I, I've never come across that before, so. Right, and it's, it's strange because he's He's um, a renter. His rent is very low, but when he went through a divorce, that was the one piece of property that he wanted for himself, and he's kept it for 15 years. And I just don't know how to value a boat. It's not like that where you can look at the their car values, but apparently there is a guide out there. You can get some information and then kind of go from there. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's funny how low-income people wind up having, sometimes they have that odd piece of property that, that it's worth more than, you know, we, we would expect a low-income person to have, but, you know, it's it's worth researching and, and knowing. Right, I agree. I've actually come across uh, clients that have NASCAR collections, and that's something that is new to me when it comes to valuing the property, but... I think we've got a good head on it anyway. Okay. Definitely not your typical LITC property. <laughs> yeah. I collect comic books and have, I mean, just, just different miscellaneous items accumulated through the years. So if I if I were to go through some kind of financial evaluation, I'm, I'm sure there would you know, have to be some extra valuing done with that, too. I understand. And... and then we're talking about receipts and what was the original purchase price. I wouldn't have receipts for books that I bought through college as a freshman. I have no idea how much I paid for them. <laughs> I know it was a lot, but right. I don't know what the actual value is. Yeah, finding the, the basis in some property and things like that can can certainly be tricky. So I've been with my organization um, a little over four years now, but um, I had done an, an LLM in tax and also, um, so I did the 
tax clinic at University of Missouri, Kansas City, and did some different tax work through the years. Um, I, I did some research. The, the corporate office of H&R Block is local and, and things like that. So on the one hand, even though there was a gap between when I finished my LLM and when I started in my position now, I still kept my hand in tax. And so I, I feel like I'm more intermediate than, than a beginner, I, I guess. With that, I was going to ask too, like what, what brought you to tax and you know what what has been kind of interesting about tax that that keeps you going with it well i started in the tax world in law school and the reason i got involved is because there were opportunities to be greeter at the vita sites we had at our law school campus and i thought well hey you know i have to do some volunteering before I graduate, might as well get started in my first year. And through that, I was able to interact with our clients, and I really enjoyed hearing their stories, helping them, clarifying what little I could as a greeter. And from there, I decided I would take a bunch of tax courses at law school. And I eventually did the low-income taxpayer clinic at law school. It was a little bit different than what I do as a, a non-university or college-affiliated program, it was good exposure. And when I graduated, there weren't really jobs out there for LATC folks, so I, I found something. worked um, in a, a corporate tax department for a large financial organization briefly, but I, I quickly decided that was not the right path for me and took some time to see what I really wanted to do, prepared some tax returns for a season, and then found this position at the time and as that was meant to be. And I applied and haven't looked back yet. So I really enjoy sticking with the program because I feel like this is one little way that I can actually give back to my community and help people in need. And I struggle sometimes because I know I can't solve all of their problems, but what I am able to do, I feel like it has a meaningful impact in their lives. And that for me is very rewarding, although at times it can be challenging. So I, I, I like working with the LITC program and the clients that it serves. Definitely good. Yeah, just, just to put a plug in, which law school did you go to? Sure. I actually graduated from uh, St. Thomas University School of Law in Miami Gardens, Florida. And to the best of my knowledge, there are about three LATC attorneys working right now. Kathy is down in South Florida, and Evan is over in LA. He's actually the scholarship um, recipient, just started his first year end of last year, and there's me. Very nice. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, I've gotten to know the University of Denver, and then knowing locally the, the UMKC, just seeing some of the graduates then go into the, the LITC field, you know, seeing what, what connections there are across the country, and 
and so on. Like the University of Denver, um, there's Matthew James in North Carolina, for example. And yeah, like, like UMKC, basically all three of the, the Kansas City clinics, they all have, have some connection to UMKC. Just throwing it out there, um, what what's it like in Pennsylvania as, as compared to other parts of the country, or are there any unique items about your um, LITC that, that you want to highlight? So I would say that one of the things about our clinic that folks might not be aware of is we have 18 counties in Pennsylvania that we serve, and some of those counties are very rural. We also have a large Amish population, which travels primarily by horse and buggy and does not use electricity for the most part. So Lancaster County, which is where I live and work next to, is the, I believe the most populated county in the U.S., the Amish population. And we, we are available to serve them, although I have yet to uh, fully work a case for someone in our community. We have very different needs as opposed to someplace like New York City or Miami because our populations are very spread out. And getting resources and information to them can be challenging at times. It's very common that we have folks who live in areas where they can't receive internet service because the reception is too poor. So during a time like now, when a lot of facilities such as libraries or community organizations are closed, they lack internet access completely because they don't have it at home and they may not have a phone with internet capabilities. A lot of us can take that for granted because we could easily ask a neighbor or a relative, but there are people in our community that do not have those resources. I'd also say that sometimes when the resources are available, it's just too expensive. I saw a commercial for a plan advertising to help folks in rural America, and it cost $150 a month for my area when I typed in my zip code. I, I would never pay $150 a month for internet, so I, you know, I imagine there are a lot of other people in the low-income category who also would not pay that much money for internet. So that's one area, and it's really important for our clinic to get connected with agencies that provide services so that they know we're available to help if they come across someone who's working maybe a different case or assisting in a different matter, and they can make a referral to our clinic. But definitely the, the lack of resources available in rural America. And then another one would be the lack of transportation. There is one bus stop in my town. <laughs> and that's actually very different from living and growing up in Pittsburgh, where there were many more bus stops, different bus routes, and different schedules. It's just different out here. There just are not those services that are going to hit all of those places. And people who actually need the help might fall in between the cracks of where the services end and where you know, other things start to pick up. 
So transportation is something that I always keep in mind when I, I mail client letters. They might not be able to get to the library or to an office. Yeah, I, I can understand that. Um, actually, in Kansas, we do have an Amish population in central Kansas. And oh, like my organization, we cover the entire state. And so it's been tricky for me because I'm on the eastern edge of the state. And so I think it's easier for us to get the world word out to the different cities, the higher populations that I really don't think the word is, is necessarily out to the, the central and western Kansas quite so much. And when I have traveled the state to, to do some outreach, western Kansas is like on the, the tax training, it's about farmers. And eastern Kansas, it's more about the non-farming, but like a things that that would more affect the the cities and, and their populations so there's definitely some some diversity in in the state's population that uh, i i don't think my client base has really tapped into quite yet i can see that happening in our area too you would think with as rural as it is we have a lot of farmers coming in we don't Based off my knowledge, the last 120 cases or so we've had in three years, I don't think I've had any current farmers come through. I will say we do have a lot of large farms in the area, so they may be over our income guidelines, or they may be affiliated with a corporation. I've, I've seen some of the signs, but I, I can't personally test to it farmer has what income in this area. I can't say that there are cows in the field behind our little apartment, so you know, they're there. Yeah, there's, it, it's funny, even in Kansas City, like, as the uh, city has progressed and, and expanded through the, past, past the former city limits, there are some spots, like, I, I can just drive I mean, maybe a couple miles away, and there are horses in a field um, that, yeah, I mean, that, that a guy, I mean, I guess it's, I don't know if it's technically a farm or what, but he has a couple horses there, and, you know, there, there are some different pocket areas, like as, as you drive a, a tiny bit further out, that that some places with horses or cows or, or whatever, but you know, mostly it is an, an industrial area. So yeah, I was I was going to turn next. You know, we're we're both talking from our homes. So I was going to ask, what's it been like for you getting used to working remotely, or or do you have any any special thoughts to to the the transition at, at this point? So I I might be a little biased, but I I love working from home. I actually find myself to be more productive on those days, but that's because I'm a person that works well on their own and in a quiet environment. And I, I love my coworkers, they're, they're great, but I've just been really productive without getting as many phone calls and without 
you know, necessarily taking a lunch at a certain hour or even maybe waking up a little bit earlier than I have been. But I, I love it. But it, it does come with some challenges, though. Um, one of those things is mail. And when am I getting letters or notifications from the IRS or clients? Fortunately, I've been very lucky because I haven't received much information from the IRS at this time at all. So I'm very lucky in that regard. And if clients are going to send me something, I usually have a heads up. And again, because I'm, I'm not working alone because it's a team at Midpen, there's usually someone in the office three or four days out of the week to check for things like mail, important notices, see the client might drop off. But other than that, um, it's been it's been really good for me to work from home. I am able to maintain client confidentiality because it's just me and my cat. There's no roommates, so no one's going to go through client files. I have a hotspot on a, a cell phone from work. I can connect to the internet. And our tech department, who is wonderful, was able to set up our laptop so that we can connect remotely to our desktop and stuff. And then I went out and bought myself a printer because I didn't have one. And I thought, you know what? I'll, I'll pay for this one. This one will be on me this time. It'll make life easier. So I can print letters and forms and send them directly to clients. Um, it's been it's been really great. Um, the pen thought of a lot of things that I didn't think of. Gave me security at home. I've got like a VPN set up. So my internet use is secure and data is safe. So I, I really enjoy it. I will say that the one thing that I've noticed is that I do miss the people. I miss my coworkers. I do miss interacting with some of the clients. But in my role with the LATC, because my territory is so spread out, there are many times where I don't personally meet with a client. Uh, they may, however, stop at like a nearby mid-ten office because we have offices in 15 different counties. But I've been working um, remotely on a lot of their issues for a long time. This was just sort of the next step for me. And I really like it. I don't know if I'll to stay that way in the future, but I really like it. I would hope so. Because it's a part-time basis. Well, good. Yeah. How have been for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was going to yeah make a couple different comments that, yeah, I, I do enjoy it as well. Like I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and, and one of them mentioned that that some more of the introverts are are thriving in in the working from home, while while the extroverts are you know getting frustrated because they're they're not able to to be out there socially. And like like one day I went into the office and I was noticing um, one of the other attorneys he he was wanting to chat a good amount. And so I was realizing, oh yeah, that's that's one thing that I, I don't have when I'm working at home is I am not interrupted by by coworkers, and so I like that that I'm able to really focus on the work and, and get a lot done. But you know, yeah, I I you know do miss some of the the social interaction. But you know, I there is a part of me that is just like you know if. If I just worked remotely from now on, I, I could deal with it and, you know, only had to go into work for, for certain occasions, that would be fine. Was there 
Um, anything specific that, that you were wanting to highlight or, or anything like that at this point? I would say that one thing I've noticed about the inquiries and the type of inquiries we're getting at our clinic is that we're seeing a lot of identity theft or possible identity theft related cases. And I think part of this is because folks are concerned about stimulus money or the economic impact payment. I've heard many cases where um, a client is calling because someone has either claimed them on their return or claimed their dependents on their return. And they don't want that because there's stimulus money involved now. And I remember one specific case where she's had an issue ongoing involves harassment and more than just an isolated incident of identity theft because the person knew the client's social, but it involved something more serious and a court order for that person to, court order told that person to stay away from the client. And still we've got an identity theft issue because now they've noticed that this has happened because they think they're stimulus money. Have you noticed anything increasing in your clinic? Not for me personally. Um, I I don't know if, if there's anything. I mean, I don't know. It, it seems like I, I only get certain traffic from, from clients that, that I don't know if it's it's just different collection issues or, or what. But I, I don't know if I, I get as heavy intakes as, as some other clinics. Um, so, I mean, that... It, it sounds like like definitely a valid concern, especially with uh, regard to the economic payments. But I I haven't come across that personally. Well, I guess it was a bit of a relief when I saw on the list serve that some of the telephone lines were reopened, and I think there was someone even today that mentioned that they tried to call the number and concerns an identity theft matter, and I, I did call it myself just before we. Uh, that and it is open so their identity theft line at the IRS is open and running Good. and I would highly recommend that anyone dealing with a case possibly give them a call as well to say an identity theft case so what's the protocol how can I avoid this to you yeah I, I saw on the listserv today I guess the practitioner priority service is open again but they were saying it's busy as usual, so you know maybe maybe the, in that regard life is back to normal. But you know <laughs> we'll see. I did remember what I was going to mention earlier. Um, you were talking about mail, and at our office, the managing attorney had the mail forwarded to her house, but we were getting spotty mail service between that and our office and then when the office manager talked to the post office they said anything that would have just said the company name would have gone directly to the managing attorney's house anything that said someone else's name was probably getting returned to sender so it just sounded like a, a big, big mix-up. So I'm, 
I'm going to contact at least one client who is supposed to have been sending me something, and yeah. Yeah, that's definitely a roadblock or an obstacle to successfully helping someone. And the longer I've been doing this, the more I've learned about certain people who may need a little more help. Like, I started mailing self-address and stamped envelopes because I don't know what their cash flow situation is and I don't want to assume that they have a stamp at home. Again, it's just one of those things where it may make a difference for someone who really needs help whether they get correspondence back to me or not. But some folks, it's not a problem. They've got email, they've got scanners at home. Some folks just don't. So trying to help them out, get a response. Like you said, you know, following up with folks and making sure that it wasn't just yeah, there's there's one client in particular that I knew he didn't have much money, so I put postage on the the envelope for for him to send, yeah, sign a tax return and, and send it back to me or, or something like that. But well, I mean, unless you have any any other items, this that's that's pretty much what I had. And I, yeah, I. I made like just a couple handwritten notes and one of them was about identity theft and that we had great number but you know, knowing the audience they probably will find it on their own <laughs> well well thank you for joining me rebecca it it's been a pleasure to to have you join me on the podcast and, and to get to know you a little better i yeah I'm, I'm pretty sure we haven't met but it's this has been pleasant to to really get to know you this way so so thank you for joining me and Thank you so much for inviting me, William. I really appreciate it. And, you know, if you ever need anything, just reach out to me. I'm just over in Pennsylvania in a quick email way. <laughs> well, very nice. If I can. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. We have a Patreon page if you'd like to support this podcast. Providing monetary support for this podcast helps with expenses like equipment or travel to tax conferences. Supporting this podcast through Patreon comes with rewards, so check out our Patreon page. Please rate or review this podcast because positive reviews help get more people to know this podcast exists. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers of the people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique, so do not take the statements on this program as tax or legal advice. Consult with your own tax professional to provide you with specific advice on your situation. Tune in next time on Tax Justice Warriors for another interesting tax discussion.